0: of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours, and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went to Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in a camel sack and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day. The heat consumed me, and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Jager Shadutha, but Jacob called it gilead Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it gilead And Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, as a congregation, we confess our unworthiness and our sin. We are filled day after day with longings of this world, the candies that our eyes see, desires that do not become you. Lord, thank you for Christ, that he has washed those sins away And called us to be a people. A people under your name. A people that is to point the rest of the world, all of the nations, to you. Because, Lord, you are a good God. You are almighty and all-powerful. And yet, you have compassion on those that you choose to have compassion. Lord, we are grateful for that. And we are grateful to gather in this place to sing songs of praise and to read your word. We are grateful to participate as a congregation in this baptism today. We need this. We, on our own, are uh, not able sometimes to sustain fire. But together, Lord, together, even the faith of a child builds us up, encourages us. Reminds us of how good you are and how much we need you. Lord, let our righteousness be completely a dependence upon you for all things. And now I pray that you would uh, challenge us and change us because of your word preached and the truth of your gospel spoken. Amen.
1: good morning i'm going to be preaching that just these people over here this morning sorry about all the rest of you there we go all right for those who are visiting with us this morning welcome we work through books of the bible predominantly And so we're in this last part of Genesis 31, and it's a big section because it's a a story. So there's no way to break that up into uh, something that would have less meaning. And and so this final section in Genesis 31 is the account of Jacob's departure from Laban, who is twice over his father-in-law. Now, the tension between uh, Jacob and Laban has been building for a couple of chapters now. And so in brief, first Laban cheated Jacob in the marriage contract he made with him, giving him the wrong bride. And by selling both his daughters to Jacob, Laban seems to gain all the blessing God had promised to Jacob by getting 14 years of free labor out of him. And then it continues for another six years. Uh, Laban continues to experience Jacob's blessing while oppressing Jacob by continuing to change the terms of their agreement And he seeks to keep Jacob enslaved so that he can keep benefiting at his expense. But the tension shifts in the section just previous to this one. God begins to bless Jacob by plundering Laban. And so about the time that Laban and his sons realized that no matter how they would try to cheat Jacob, their wealth was slowly, slowly being transferred to him by God, this is also the time when the Lord commanded Jacob to leave Padan Aram, the land of his ancestors, and the land of his oppression, to return once again to the promised land of Canaan. Now, I didn't know this, but the primary historical significance of Genesis 31 is related to the way it prefigures the Exodus account. In Exodus, God calls Israel out of oppression in Egypt and into the promised land. And there's so much in common here, and intentionally so, with the account of Jacob leaving oppression in Padan Aram. And I just cannot ever get tired of saying Padan Aram. In both accounts, the departure begins with negotiations. In both cases, there's anger, exploitation, and pursuit. In both, the escape is made because God himself protects those he has called out of slavery. And so in the Exodus, Israel leaves as a brand new nation. But here in Exodus 31, Israel, who is about to receive his new name in the following chapter, leaves haran as an entirely new tribe so this is a a great historical significance because there's a separation of tribes here a new tribe is formed god's effectual call of chosen individuals to a new people for his own possession is one of the major themes of the scriptures both old testament and new God's people are his treasured possession, Deuteronomy 7, 6. Chosen out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And today God is still calling for himself a people. By the sacrifice of his own blood, Revelations 5, 9 to 10, Jesus ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation creating from them a kingdom of priests to our God. So I want want to work a little bit backwards this morning, working backwards through the chapter so that we can begin to understand the parts of God's process of accomplishing this purpose, which are revealed in this chapter for our benefit. Because God is still the same God, and He is still doing the same work in calling a people for Himself. And so, to understand the message of our text this morning, we need to recall that Jacob, up to this point, is an Aramean. One of the humble confessions that Israel was commanded to make as they presented their tribute to God, the first fruits offering, as a tribute to God, Deuteronomy 26, 5. They would, as they would wave the first fruits offering of the land towards God, and they would actually confess that they had not always owned this land. And they would confess, um, a wandering Aramean was my father. Which is a way of saying that Israel was not always a people. There was not always a special people. We were nobodies. A wandering Aramean was my father. If a people was to exist for God, we've seen this all the way through Genesis, then he would have to create them for himself. Everyone has turned astray. All the nations rebelled against God. All the nations unified at the Tower of Babel in rebellion against God. And so if there were to be a nation for God's own, he would have to make them. And this is the story of Israel. Jacob was an Aramean, the nephew of Laban. His wives were Aramean, the daughters of Laban. There there are no closer biological ties that exist between... Uh, than between the family of Laban and the family of Jacob. None we'd like to think about anyway. So they're, they're very closely biologically related. The nephew and the daughters, they're, they're Arameans. They come from this land. And so the author begins to foreshadow an interesting development by referring to Laban in verses 20 and 24 as Laban the Aramean. Well, it's an interesting distinction when everybody in the story is an Aramean. Then in in verse 25, when Laban overtook Jacob, just as the army of Pharaoh would later overtake the escaping Israelites at the Red Sea, the families of Jacob and Laban each pitched their tents opposite each other. And this is all military terminology, describing the drawing up of battle lines in the ancient world. So this whole section describes these two families. Now, we're talking Jacob, his wives, and his kids, and Laban and all of his family. So one of these has a lot more adults to fight. But they are set up as as military uh, groups, drawn in battle lines, uh, military enemies. Jacob does not merely leave. He fled. And he is pursued. And then Laban overtook him. And then in verse 26, Laban accuses Jacob of taking his daughters as prisoners of war, captives of the sword. So the whole section is is written in this military language, and then the whole narrative ends with a peace treaty between two enemies who agree to remain apart, and they set up stones as a monument. This is where we will not pass. You will stay on that side, and we'll stay on this side i read that peace treaty again, starting in verse 44. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and make, made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagur sahadutha but Jacob called it galid Laban said, "'This heap is a witness between you and me today.' Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, "'The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. "'If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, "'although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me.' Then Laban said to Jacob, "'See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? "'This heap is a witness.' And the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Now, if you've been following with us through this story, you can tell that Laban does not have a very good relationship with the truth. And even as they, they take this covenant, Jacob and his kinsmen make a heap and a pillar, and then Laban says, See this heap and pillar that I have set up between us? I mean, it's just he's just a guy not very well... Uh, related to the truth all the way through this story. Everything, though, about this treaty occurs in pairs. There are two monuments, both a heap of stones and a single pillar stone. And then there are two names given for the monuments, both an Aramaic name and a Canaanite or Hebrew name. Both mean witness heap or heap of witnesses, which is funnier. Then, then there are two meals and two treaty provisions. And finally, two gods called on as judges over the treaty. Now, verse 53, depending on your translation, makes it seem a little different. But you've got to remember, capitalization is added later. And so verse 53 really should be capital G, the god of Abraham, and small g, the god of Nahor, and small g, god of their father Because the verb judge is actually in plural form. So it it clearly indicates that Laban had two deities in mind. And the, the primary point of all this is that Jacob and Laban now represent two distinct peoples. Each with their own God and each speaking the language of his own country. And so there's the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor who will watch over this treaty. And they each name it in the language of their home country, Jacob, in a Canaanite language, which we now call Hebrew, and Laban in Aramean. God has called out a people for himself. Uh, But they won't be called Abrahamites or Jacobites, as we will see in the following chapter, for they will be God's Israelites. So, seeing that this passage then is about God creating a people for himself, for now a family and then a tribe, and after the exodus, a nation, now we want to see what the passage reveals about God's work in accomplishing his purpose by looking at the high drama point of this narrative. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us why Rachel stole her father's household idols. It may be that they were made of rare and valuable materials, or that she was still attached to them in some way, despite her new allegiance to Jacob's God. Some commentators have posited that they may have represented the right of inheritance, but most likely she was not yet completely free of her polytheistic background and beliefs. There's, there's superstition surrounding these items. And it's not unlike the way with us as we come to have faith in Jesus for salvation. And then don't always look only to Jesus for salvation in every area of our lives. We might expect That through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we don't have to go to hell or we can be in heaven someday and yet not trust in him for our daily provision. We may not trust in him for our reputation and so think that we need to carve one out for ourselves. We might not trust him for everything that we truly need and so seek to gain those things and store up treasures here on earth. And so there's a myriad of ways in which God is in the process of separating us from our idols And this is continuing to happen for Jacob and Leah and Rachel and all those who meditate on the Word of God here. The point here of Rachel stealing these gods is the high drama for two reasons. First, because it's the greatest threat in this passage to Jacob and his family. And it's introduced by this theft in conjunction with Jacob's response in trying to publicly clear his own name. Verse 32. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So uh, the main tension point, the main threat to Jacob's family is she has stole the idols, Jacob doesn't know, and he takes an oath. Whoever you find having taken them, they will die. And, And Rachel is essential to God's people at this point. The second reason this is the climax of the drama is because of what God was accomplishing through Jacob and Rachel's actions. From a Hebrew perspective, the fact that Laban's gods could be stolen was a clear indicator of the fact that they were uh, not gods. A true god could not be godnapped. Everything surrounding this theft is full of sarcasm and irony regarding these false gods. As Isaiah writes, Isaiah 44 9 to 20. A human craftsman selects a piece of stone or wood and fashions a God that is profitable for nothing. Half of it he burns in the fire to, to warm himself and cook his food. The rest he makes into his God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, "'Deliver me, for you are my God.' Half of it I burned in the fire. Shall I make the rest of it an abomination?' Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? God mocks the idols several times in Scripture, and he's not nice about it. They're not people. He doesn't have to preserve their feelings, and he viciously attacks them and their credibility. They are not God's. When God rescues a people for himself, he makes a point of discrediting the false gods his people used to worship in their rebellion against him. Like the associated passage in Exodus, where God executed judgments on all the gods of Egypt, Exodus 12.12. 12. In this narrative, the highlight is that God systematically puts Laban's false gods to an open shame. First. Laban's gods are stolen. Then they are put to a shocking indignity that no true god could allow. Verse 33 to 35. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, "'Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, "'for the way of women is upon me.' So he searched, but did not find the household gods." Laban's gods suffer an intensifying indignity. They are stolen, hidden, and finally sat on by a woman who claims to be having her period. I'll I'll try not to be any more graphic than Scripture itself here, but it is important that we understand how this culture would have understood this. Now, we don't necessarily understand these things the same way today, and that's not a problem, but so that we can understand how this first audience would have understood this, this was considered to be a pretty contaminating condition. The law later codified that women were ceremonially unclean at this time, and according to Leviticus 15, 19 to 21, anything they sat on during this time, even anyone who touches what they would sit on, was to be considered unclean. They could not even go into the temple where God or the gods of the pagans would be worshipped. This was a a condition uh, that was considered at that time to be contaminating. And so Laban can't even imagine that someone would sit on his idols in that condition, And it's the one place he won't even look, which uh, you can't blame him. No guy would have looked there. Rachel does not hold his gods with the same regard. She willfully defiles his idols, treating them like a sanitary napkin. And her action here shows a contemptuous rejection of the idea that Laban's cult objects had any genuine religious worth as she sits menstruating on Laban's gods. And as I say this, this sounds shocking and vulgar, uh, and that is exactly what is intended by the author of Scripture here. Laban's gods are the object of irony, sarcasm, and dirty humor. As the Israelites would snicker about the gross things happening to Laban's gods, they're not gods. They're being defiled before him. And in a contrast with these false gods that cannot even protect themselves from indignity, the God of Israel protects and provides. And the future of God's people depends on that contrast. Yahweh is still the God who subjects other gods to an open shame as he rescues his people from dependence on powers which falsely claim to bring prosperity and protection. Our world today is full of lies, powers, and things which promise to bring joy, happiness, peace, and protection. In Colossians two thirteen to 15, which, which I probably should have read with last week's sermon, it says, "...and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him," that is, Christ Jesus, of calling for himself a people, and part of calling for himself a people is still discrediting the idols, showing us that they cannot produce what they have promised, that everything they claim is a lie, and that all hope is only rightly put in our God. So part of God's rescue plan is to entirely discredit all idols. Everything else you and I might put our hope and trust in for what we truly need. In his grace, he will bring each of us, uh, each of his own, to a place of trust in all things. Because it is only, church, when we are detached from our idols, that we can live in all the hope, peace, and joy of the gospel. We'll go through trials of many kinds. There are all sorts of things that we'd like to have that we do not And we can only live righteously. We can only live the way God has called us to when we actually believe what he has promised. And so between the defilement of Laban's gods and the peace treaty between now two distinct tribes, there are the false accusations and false claims that Laban spouts as the two clans meet across battle lines. And they are so related to this idea of false gods. Laban's lies are the lies of idolatry. Laban's lies are the lies that this world has to tell us. And so there's three major lies. Now, Laban, like I said, he lies in just about everything he says here. But there's three big lies that Laban brings to this meeting. Jacob's family leaves the land of oppression. Their oppressor chases them. And then he chastises them with these three lies, each which claim that Jacob's immediate obedience to God was a foolish act. He says this, how foolish for you to have done this. And each of these three lies has an answer in the gospel, a truthful answer on which we will meditate together this morning. Now, there are several twistings of the truth and lies which Laban presents in this chapter, but the first of the three we'll look at is in verse 27 and 28. He says, Why did you flee and trick me, and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? That's why that word's there. It's double, double entendre. Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. He claims that he would have happily let them go. He's had Jacob enslaved for uh, 20 years now. And just like the Pharaoh, there's this on and off again. Oh, well, we'll let you go. Okay, well, you could go for a little while and come back. There's this negotiation. He claims he would have let them go. He insinuates that Jacob's obedience to God was mistimed. That a delay would have led to joy and singing. Why leave when there's still merriment to be had and celebration to enjoy? How foolish. These words would have sounded very hollow to Jacob's family. They had already experienced Laban's version of a happy feast. In chapter 29, at Jacob's marriage feast, while he was drinking and laughing with Laban, he did not yet realize he was the butt of the joke. And Leah, his wife, who had been sold outright to Jacob, had suffered the enduring scorn of her husband because of Laban's deception at her wedding feasts. She is not fooled by Laban's promise of mirth and songs. This family knows, and now the reader does too, that the joy and pleasures offered by Laban are short-lived and costly. Laban calls Jacob's immediate obedience to God's command foolishness. But Jacob is beginning to understand, as David wrote Psalm 1611, God's instructions Make known the paths of life. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, are pleasures forevermore. So Laban has lied that joy is found back in the land of oppression. Why'd you leave so soon? It was just about to be time for mirth and singing. It's like the lie the Israelites believed when they grumbled against Moses in the wilderness after God had rescued them mightily from slavery in Egypt in numbers 11:5. This is I laugh every time I read this. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. Oh, the garlic. They forgot why the fish was free. They were slaves. Free food for life. That is pretty enticing into slavery. They were drawn back to the land of oppression because of their appetites. Like the seed that is choked by the thorns, Mark 4, 18 to 19, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. In what way are we today believing the idolatrous lie of where joy is to be found? I want to look back at Psalms here. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The second of Laban's major lies is found in verse 29a. It is in my power to do you harm. In Hebrew, this is plural. It is every one of you, meaning the whole of Jacob's family. It's in my power to do y'all harm. But the reality is, this is just not the case. In his next statement, he confirms he only has what power God allows, and he will not be allowed to harm Jacob. Genesis 31, 29, it is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, earlier we saw that Laban had cheated Jacob repeatedly. He had oppressed him, essentially making him an indentured servant, and then changed the terms of the agreement to keep Jacob enslaved. He had accomplished these things against Jacob. Jacob was going through a rough time, and it was caused by his oppressor. Well, what does he say? Genesis 31.7, still here in the same chapter earlier. He says, your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. So God did allow Laban to cheat Jacob, causing what seemed to be harm causing what seemed to be a huge setback for Jacob's family in 20 years of indentured servitude. But God had not allowed Laban's deceit to harm Jacob. That's that's an important message in and of itself. Things might seem like they are not going in a way that is beneficial to us, but God, who promises, says he will not allow it to harm you. Someone could waste 20 years of your life And God, in his commandment, can say, it will not harm you. Everyone could turn against you. Everyone could hate you. You could have nothing right now because of the horrible circumstances of your life. And God rightly says, I will not allow it to harm you. But now Laban has come out in force, and he claims to have the power to harm Jacob. Physically. But God had already forbidden Laban from saying anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, this doesn't mean that Laban wasn't allowed to speak against Jacob. He does that all the way through his speech in this passage as he brings false accusations against Jacob. And he tries to make it sound like he's the one who's doing things really well. And Jacob's the one who's being uh, kind of dishonest and And Why did you just stop and leave without telling me? And I would have just given you guys all a party. And, oh man, how how would you... Make it so I couldn't kiss my dear grandchildren. So Laban makes it sound like Jacob's the bad guy. So he still speaks against him. So what does it mean here that God does not allow him to speak either good or bad against Jabin? What it means is that whatever he thought of Jacob, even if he felt like he had a legitimate grievance against him, he was not to take any action against him. This is actually judgment language to speak good or bad. So when he is to speak good or bad, he's saying you cannot execute judgment against Jacob no matter what you think. God has corked the bottle of his aggressiveness, one commentator writes. He has taken away Laban's prerogative to exert the power to interfere in Jacob's life at all anymore. Laban's lie is an empty boast. Psalm 118, 5-7, again we worship our God in response to this. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Jake, at the end of this, Jacob and, and Laban make an agreement and leave each other as equals, each the leaders of a tribe. Well, Jacob is the leader of 12 little boys and a daughter so far, and, or 11 little boys and a daughter, I should say. And, and Laban has this whole clan. And they God has elevated them, uh, Jacob, to the same position. God is on his side. What what can Laban do to me? Nothing. I have the power, is Laban's lie. Twice, both in verse 42 and in verse 53, Jacob refers to God uh, by a name that is unique to this chapter. So there's nowhere else in the Bible that it says this, and it's used twice here. He calls God the fear of Isaac, And you know it's a name. They capitalize it in your English translation. It's kind of a strange name. Let's read verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So by this strange name, the fear of Isaac, Jacob is making it clear, first, that the only reason that Laban's cheating did not harm him, and secondly, in verse 53, the only reason that Laban has not physically harmed him is because the God of his father, Isaac, has not allowed it. He is the God who inspires dread, Laban's dread. That is who is protecting Jacob the fear of Isaac, the God who inspires dread. So Laban has lied. He's lied as the world does today that joy is found back in the land of oppression. And he has lied as the world does today that it has the power to do us harm. It has no power through what God does allow to cause lasting harm. And we can boldly say with the psalmist, what can man do to me? Nothing of any eternal consequence. Finally, Laban's third lie is found in verse 43. All that you see is mine. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. This, this one's like hard to even like believe he said it. It's, it's that bad. This final pretense is as empty as Satan's boast that all the kingdoms of the world are his. His daughters, whom he once treated as property and sold, were also given to Jacob by God. Jacob's children, as we saw in chapter 30, were gifts from God, who provided for their birth miraculously. The flocks, which were legitimately owed to Jacob, according to the contract with Laban, were given to Jacob by God through miraculous means. When Jacob was explaining this to his wives, Genesis 31, 9, he recognized this, stating, "'Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father,' And given them to me. And so the reality is, Jake, or Laban has nothing. He claims, all of this is mine to be given from my hand. He makes it sound like he's being magnanimous. But God has given Jacob each of these things as he has wrested them from his oppressor. Psalm 24:1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. And so in reality, Laban has nothing. And even so, the Lord will take it away and give it to those he has chosen for his own. This is why Jesus will say, Matthew 13:12, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What we see here in Genesis 31 is that God has taken the side of His people. He promises that the meek before Him shall inherit all the earth. He has taken the lowly, the second-born, the barren, the have-nots, and given them an abundance for all eternity. As barren Hannah, who births a child, or celebrates and praises God in, in 1 Samuel 2, 7-8, she sings, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Church, this world still has lies to tell you and I. And God, in his mercy, is still calling for himself a people and making them his treasured possession. And in doing so, part of that process is he will discredit the things that we have put our hope and trust in. Now, this last two years for me has been a lot of losing trust in the things I ought not to have trusted in the first place. This last two years for me has been seeing clearly my own idolatry. The things I wanted to enjoy. The things that I was not okay without. The fears that simmered beneath the surface. As different things that I had put my hope in are suddenly shaken. This is the grace and mercy of our God. He will not allow you to be harmed by the circumstance that he caused you to walk in. What can man do to me? What can nature do to me? Nothing. God is in control. And so he, in his purpose of making us his people, that we would glorify him and enjoy him forever, he is debasing us of these false notions, false gods, idols of our heart that we have erected and we celebrate this work this morning we celebrate this and thank god for it that he is faithful not only faithful to us but faithful to bring us to faithfulness that our trust and hope would be in him and our joy hope and peace would be full let's pray father we thank you so much for your word which is always pertinent to us. Lord, even as we see what meditation on your word looks like, I pray that we would walk in that midweek, that we would not just read to, to read or read to get through, but we would meditate on the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that by your spirit we can understand what not even the the most intellectual and most intelligent people could without it. And so, Lord, we have a hope as we come to your word. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and that in your loving kindness you rebuke us gently so that our hearts would be turned towards you. Lord, may we suffer your rebuke well this morning. May the lies that we've believed be exposed in our minds. May the false gods, the idols of our hearts, be exposed, we pray. It is painful when you do this surgery on us, but the health it brings to us is so joyful. Speak your truth into the lies of that our hearts have believed,
0: we pray. Amen.